0: You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture.
1: We're going to be taking a pause, a couple month pause, in our series in Matthew. We've worked through Matthew chapter 10. Uh, but we intentionally are going to pause for a while, not to just take a break from Matthew, but to address some things in, that we as elders have become aware of that we want to give attention to. And uh, even though there are two short series, it's worth us addressing. And as we listen over the past year and, and, in general, but also asking our home community leaders and our deacons and others, what are some of the struggles that we are going through? Um, two of them keep recurring over and over again. One is is marriage and family, parenting, that whole big category that it's, it's a lot of hard work. It's exhausting. So we want to, for the next four weeks, we're going to be addressing the topic of family. Uh, today I'm going to talk about God's design for the family. He created it, so what did he, how did He create it and what did He create it for? Next week we're going to talk about being single. Most of us, before we become married and parents, have some time being single. Then we're going to talk about, in two weeks from now, what marriage, the keys to marriage, and not the keys, but God's design for marriage, and then also in four weeks, parenting. And then after that, we're going to spend four weeks. The other topic that's recurring is how do we deal with conflict, both in, in interpersonal conflict, both within families, in the workplace, and other places. So we're going to spend four weeks on what we call peacemaking, which is one of our uh, steps in our, in our pathways process. So Eight weeks of family and conflict. They kind of dovetail well together, we thought, too. Why family? There's two basic reasons why we wanted to deal with this. Uh, one was over the course of this past year, the past few years, but particularly this year, that the, our society, the media, and now even the court system has taken it upon itself to, uh, to deconstruct and reconstruct what a family is they have culture and the courts have decided that we are going to redefine what family is and therefore our society can live in light of those new definitions and as you know that marriage is no longer simply between a man and a woman but it's between man and a man a woman and a woman and predictions are it's going to keep going to an adult and a child a man and his dog all those kind of things and people think oh that's ludicrous that's ludicrous that family is going to degrade that way well a few years ago we would have thought it's ludicrous that same-sex marriage would have been a law and so that's just one reason but that's not the thrust of our weeks together this week's together but that's it's an awareness that our culture is saying it's up in the air what family is and we as a church because we believe in the scriptures say no it's not it hasn't changed we need to understand how to live in light of god's definition of family the second reason is what i call family fatigue i want to show you a picture which is a classic picture now in the Curtis household, that picture should speak volumes to you, especially as parents. Does it not? Uh, Now, the mom there, a.k.a. Monica, um, the exasperation, if I can use that word, the frustration on her face as she hangs on, has to hold herself up on the table, and that little boy, a.k.a. Jordan, also is hanging tightly on, he is also exasperated and exhausted. And one of my things is, which one do you identify with more, right? You might identify with the mom, but you might identify with the kid. Family is hard work. It's exhausting. It's exasperating. There's there's a lot of reasons for that, and we're going to address some of those kind of things. I heard a quote recently that said that when it came to parenting, in parenting, the days are long but the years are short. When it comes to parenting, when it comes to family, the days are long, but the years are short. That picture was taken 25 years ago. That little boy now has four children of his own. The years are very short. You can, you can turn that off. I want people's attention now. Family is hard work, but when we get back to it, instead of starting with what, how do we deal, we deal with the hard work? How do we deal with the exasperation? How do we deal with the family? We need to go back and say, "Who created this? God, and why did He create it?" And let's begin there, and that's what we're going to do today. So I'm going to ask you to stand as we read out of Genesis 1 and 2. Since it's, we're going to read most of Genesis 1, but not all of it, and we're going to read Genesis chapter 2, it's going to be on your screen, and I've asked Monica to read it so you don't have to listen to my monotone reading for a long time today. So as we do this, hear the word of the Lord for us today.
0: Genesis 1, 1-2 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust dust, from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of the land is good. Dilium and Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him.
1: Lord, we thank you for these words, not just for our instruction, but for also our understanding. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, awaken us to your design for us, not just in the sake of humanity or family generic, but our personal lives as we are living them now here uh, in the place you've given us. And also as a church, we just thank you for it and lift it up for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In that text, there's quite a lot. We're not going to walk through every detail of that, but I wanted to give the full picture of, in Genesis 1, God creates the world and describes man and uh, woman created in his image. And in Genesis chapter 2, he sort of zeroes in on man and woman in greater detail so we can understand specifically how they are created. And and in verse 26 of chapter 1, he says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then the next verse, So God created man in his own image in the image of God he created them and then he gets more specific male and female he created them what what does it mean for us to be created in the image of God that's that's the thrust of those verses there is that we are created both male and female in the image likeness of God Now, there's a number of different ways to approach this but we're going to focus today on a relational aspect of this in verse 26 he says and then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. It's hard to miss there that it's in the plural. One God is now talking in the plural. God said us and our. We understand, not from just this passage, but from our understanding of the whole Bible and particularly the explanation within the New Testament that our one God is a God who exists in three persons. We understand that in our christian doctrine as the trinity or the triunity i want to just begin today by just briefly describing that because we refer to it periodically we give a benediction every week in the name of the father son and the holy spirit um but but a little definition so we understand that it is it's important for understand this is the image of god that we're created in and it's the trinitarian image of god so what do we talk about when we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, the doctrine of the Trinity affirms that God's whole and undivided essence... Let me back up a little bit. There's, there's some theological terms through here. There are some philosophical words. Some of this language we don't normally use. But the, da- the, the struggle with talking about the Trinity is we need to be precise, and scholars have worked very hard at being precise... And sometimes those words we need to unpack a little bit. So bear with me as I use the vocabulary that is often used. Not forgive me, just bear with me. Where were we? The doctrine of the Trinity affirms that God's whole and uninvited essence belongs equally, eternally, simultaneously, and fully to each of the three distinct persons of the Godhead. When we talk, theologically, when we talk about God in three persons, we use the term Godhead. Not referring to his head, but God as a Godhead. It affirms that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit each possesses the divine nature equally. Each one is divine equally. So as to avoid Arianism, Arianism is the idea that Jesus was created. There was one God. He needed a Savior, so he created Jesus the Son. That's not biblical. That's not orthodox. Eternally, that these, these three are equally eternally, so as to avoid thinking that God's nature was created. Simultaneously, so as to avoid modalism. In other words, that God exists in three modes. A very common explanation of the Trinity in the church is that God, for example, the Trinity is explained like it's like water, uh, ice and liquid and vapor. That's what the Trinity is. That's not accurate. It's not like an egg with a shell, the yolk and the white. That's not accurate. God is not like that. Okay? Those are common, and our, our desire to grasp easily the concept of Trinity, we throw out those analogies, but he is not in different modes at different times. And fully, so as to avoid the tripartite understanding the Trinity. In other words, some people say that God is like a pie you cut into three pieces. It's the same pie, but it's just three pieces. No, it's not the Trinity. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are not each one-third God but each is fully God, equally God, and it is true eternally and simultaneously. In the essence, then, each member of the Godhead is identical, but each person is distinct. There is a mystery here for us to wrap our minds around. God, as as we said today, is infinite. There's some bigness of him it's hard for us to understand. That's okay. Okay. To summarize, the Trinity is one God existing in three persons with each person fully God. To deny or modify any of these three concepts, um, aspects of the Trinity, is to deny orthodox doctrine and the revelation of Scripture. Another word for Trinity is often used as triunity. Somehow they're united, but there's three of them. Now, why, what do we need to understand about, why do I even explain the Trinity? So God exists as one God but in three persons, so what? So what? Well, because the Scripture indicates that God is both one and three. For, for, we read here that in the beginning God created the heavens and earth. We know that the Spirit was there. We know that according to the New Testament that nothing was created without Christ unless it was through Christ. So we know the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all there creation. We know that, that for example, in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, o Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We are monotheists. There's only one God. But Then we also know, through especially the Old Testament, he defines that there's a Father, Son and Holy Spirit, the Great commission. go baptizing them in the name singular of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. What's also interesting, it's, it's hard to miss, and it's, it's easy to miss in our English Bible, but in the, Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heaven's Word. The word for God, there is Elohim. What's unusual about that, it's one God, but it's in the plural. It's a form that's in a plural. So, in other words, it's referring to the idea of majesty, but the plurality of majesty. It's an idea that God, uh, before there was anything else, before anything else in create, was created, there was a God who was described as a plurality of majesty. So, God existed that way. That's another reason why understanding the Trinity is one God and three persons is so important. Trinity, in reality, is a perfect community the trinity in reality is a perfect community is a community of the god the three persons are in always in right relationship with himself god and when we refer to god in right relationship with himself we mean the three persons the father son and the holy spirit so when we talk about god who existed before there is anything else he existed in majestic community why is this so important This is because God exists with interpersonal relationships. God exists in community. So what? This is what. Community and interpersonal relationships existed for eternity before there was ever people. It's not a cultural creation. It's not, oh, wait, I got an Adam and Eve and some kids. What am I going to do? Oh, I'll make a family. Oh, we'll make community. No, God started with who he was. I exist as one God In a majestic community, I want to replicate that in some way. So community, relationship, is eternally part of who God is. Its nature is part of the nature of God. It is not a necessity of our culture. It's not a necessity because you have more than one person. It's rooted in God himself. And our relationships, our community, are designed to reflect that since we're created in his image. That's really important for us to understand. It might, might go over really quick, but it's really important that community is internally existing as part of the nature of God. So God exists in community. And we are created in His image. Therefore, we are created to exist in community. To be in the image of God means we are created to exist in interpersonal relationships and in community with other images of God. And for them to function properly, we need to understand both that we need to reflect God himself and his design. If we're in his image and he created us to be a certain way, then for us to function properly, we need to understand what that is. The biblical community, we could say, as we're going to break this down in a minute, uh, we're going to identify six relational characteristics. Now, this is, there's other ways to talk about the Trinity and God and his attributes, but we're going to talk about the relational characteristics of God. We we often don't think of it as God in that sense of interrelating with himself before he even created anything, but they were real, and since we are created in his image, those therefore should be real for us. For the guys who have been part of relational elder training, this will be familiar. We began early on in the RET with this to say, if we're going to understand how we function as a church, we need to understand how God functions. And then later in RET we come back to it. There are six relational characteristics. I'm going to go them, through them fairly quickly. I could spend a lot of time elaborating them. I don't think it's necessary. I just want you to get the concepts. Okay? The first relational characteristic of the community of the Trinity is role. That there's a role. Each person of the Trinity has roles. There is one God and three persons with different roles. And each person of the Trinity understands and functions specifically defined roles. Each person of the Trinity understands and cooperates with roles with other persons of the triune community. So what, what does that look like? Just to give you one example. Okay. So the Father has role to do, the Son has role to do, the Holy Spirit does, and they're not identical. For example, we are told that the Father is the lover. For God, so the Father loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. We're told that the Father is the judge. The, the Father is the prime initiator. In other words, the, the things of creation and redemption, the Father initiated. We are told that the Father loved the world and sent the Son into the world to redeem it. The Father did not come into the world. The Father did not die for our sins. The Son did. The Son, we are told, is the Redeemer, the Intercessor, the head of the Church. Those are roles that He has that the Father and Holy Spirit do not have. The Son was sent by the Father and came into the world so that it might be saved through Him. The Father did the sending and the Son did the going. They had different roles. The Holy Spirit, we're told, is the comforter, the helper, the sealer. We're also, he is also a part of the save, salvation, redemption of man, and the promised Holy Spirit that he would come and be with us and, and seal and, um, and, and guarantee our inheritance. So each member of the Trinity had different roles, and they knew what each other's role was, and they functioned within their roles. Correspondingly is uh, the second aspect of the relational characteristics that each member of the Trinity has different responsibilities different responsibilities responsibility means something for which somebody is responsible a duty an obligation a purpose and each person of the god had different responsibilities as they functioned within their roles so for example each each person knows so we would say in this that each person of the trinity knows his part knows his responsibility of being on mission creating the world they did different things redeeming the world they did different things they had different responsibilities Each person of the Trinity understands and cooperates with the responsibilities of the other members of the triune community. So, for example, the Father in creation, the Father initiated uh, what was going to happen. The Father took responsibility of sending the Son. Son, you're going. He didn't volunteer to go himself. He didn't send the Holy Spirit. His responsibility was to send. The Son, the Son's responsibility was to go or be sent to the world, to take on humanity. To die on the cross—that was his responsibility, and the Holy Spirit's responsibility was to empower and inspire and lead Christ while He was on Earth during that time. They had different roles and correspondingly different responsibilities. The Son dies for our sin, but the Holy Spirit and the Father did not. The third relational characteristic of the Trinity is communication. It should be kind of self-evident, but. We don't think about this that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for eternity are communicating with each other. They're talking. They have conversations. Within the Trinity, there is perfect communication. We have, we have a hard time with this because with us, the communication is not perfect. The Trinity must have had conversations. This is one of those little like no- duh" kind of things, but we know they talked because let us make, God said God said, let us make man in our image. They must have talked about it they must have conversed, what are we going to do? we also know that they conversed about, oh this is going to go wrong real fast what are we going to do? I know, we'll send the son to die for the sins, that was, we're told in Ephesians that that was done before the foundation, before even created the world they had a conversation, what are we going to do when it goes wrong? it wasn't plan B or plan C they talked about things, we also know that communication among the persons of the Trinity are perfect because they are perfect, unlike human communication Within the Trinity, there are no misunderstandings, there's no confusion, there's no secrets, there's no deceit. To be, and uh, so consistent was the communication between, for example, the Father and the Son, that while on earth, we're told in John 8 and John 12 that Jesus never said anything without first hearing from the Father. So it wasn't just some kind of cosmic thing. When Jesus walked the earth, he was in communication with the Father and led by the Holy Spirit. The fourth relational characteristic of the community Trinity is submission. Do you ever think of God being submitted to something? He is. To Himself. The Trinity knows, this is the definition, that the Trinity knows who submits to whom, when, and why. The Trinity, the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, know who, whom submits to whom, when, and why. The submission... This is important. Submission is an acknowledgement of role and responsibility, not of worth and value. Submission. When we meet talking about submission, we're talking about willingly yielding to the authority in a direction of another. And you're doing that because of role and responsibility, not because of worth or value. When Christ submitted to the Father, when Je- the Son submitted to the Father, was He less God than the Father? Was he of less value than the Father? Was he of less worth than the Father? No. They're equal in value and worth in essence of Godness. But because of the difference of roles and responsibility, the Son submitted to the Father. He said that I came down from heaven not only to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. We were told later, like in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was struggling and Jesus, they had been in perfect communication. Jesus knew where this was going, and he said to the Father, if there's some other way we can make this work, I'd really like to do that. And the Father said no, and so Jesus submitted. He yielded to the Father's role and responsibility at that point. The Holy Spirit submits to the Son, guiding people to the truth. But we also know that Christ submitted to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit while on earth. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. We're told explicitly that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit. So while he was here, Jesus yielded, submitted to the work of the Holy Spirit in his ministry. Submission is an acknowledgement of role and responsibility, not of worth and value. I'll give you a little foreshadowing, in two weeks when we talk about marriage, that's going to come up again. Fifth relational characteristic. The community of Trinity is in unity. It's in relational unity. It's correct understanding of functioning role and responsibility, communication and submission. So God is always in unity. It's perfect community. There's perfect understanding of roles and responsibility. Perfect communication. Perfect submission. So therefore, unity is, is, is not made up of three persons trying to figure out what's going on, but they're the same, they're working the same, it all works out. They function in their roles and responsibilities with perfect alignment and unison. Their, their communication is perfect. There's no misunderstandings or secret. Their submission is appropriate at the right time and unreserved. So they have perfect unity. Unity, not simply because they're all made of all one God, but because of their roles of responsibility and community and submission, that is what unity is defined as. And sixthly, the relational characteristic is they have intimacy. Intimacy. God, uh, the intimacy of God involves his love, relationship, and oneness. God is love. Well, who did he love for eternity? He had love for himself in the sense of the different persons of the Trinity expressing and being loving to each other. He didn't invent love. The world is not created because God said, I really would like something to love. If I don't have that object, then um, something goes wrong. Unlike other religions which give that reason for God creating the world, Christianity does not do that. God was not deprived of love for eternity. He chose out of love to create the world, but he didn't need to do that. But the persons of the Trinity function in not only perfect unity, but perfect intimacy, perfect love relationship with each other. And It's impossible. Is there there something that God can't do? You know those those kind of uh, rhetorical, stupid questions? Is is there something, you know, is is there a rock God so big that he can't move? I'll tell you one thing God can't do. God can't not love. God can't not. God has to love. He cannot be loving. I might be confusing the factor here. I'm not sure. Uh, God is love. And for, trinity, for eternity, he has been loving. He doesn't have to try to love. He is love. That, he doesn't have to, the Father does not try to love the Son, the Son, the, and the Holy Spirit. They don't try to love each other. They do. By the way, God doesn't have to try to love us. He does. Because that's the essence of who he is that's expressed in relationship. So, summarizing this then, when God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, what is He talking about? He's talking about that people, humans, husbands, wives, families, uh, to function as as, as His image and His likeness, we are to be in and function correctly with roles, responsibility, communication, submission, unity, and intimacy. That is what it means, one of the ways of expressing what it means to be created in the image of God. Notice all those things are relational. All those things are about being in community. All those things are about being in family. And yet that's what we're created for, to be in family, to be in community. Can you show... um, the first icon. What is that? Somebody tell me that loud. What is it? That's Internet Explorer. No, it's not. Turn to the next one. What's that? No, it's not. Okay. Those, that, that F and the E before it are icons, AKA images. That E and that F. That's not Explorer, that's not Facebook. What are they? They're representations of an Explorer and Facebook. Why is that such a big deal? Why am I using that as an analogy? I'll, I'll tell you why. Because an icon represents something that's much more complex and bigger behind it, right? When that sits on your desktop and you double click on it, does it do anything? No. All it does is connects you, points you to and connects you to something way behind it, uh, something much more complex, much more powerful than the icon itself. There are, there's hardware, there's software, there's algorithms. There's some very smart people at the other end of those icons. That's why they work. Does that make sense? They themselves are not the real thing. They're an image, they're an icon. But something behind it in the reality of why it works and why we like those things is because what's behind it works. What behind, And then when it doesn't, we get pretty upset. But when it, it works. So why, what's my analogy here? My analogy is that we're created in an image of God. We're just icons. We're imaged. The reality of what we're pointed to and what we're linked to is something much more complex, much more powerful than ourselves. God himself who lives in majestic community. So when we try to image and be the images of God, it's not just that we're working it up. For it to be effective, for those icons to be effective, they must be connected to and pointed to the reality that's behind them. And it's the same with us. If we think we can go off and be our own images and do our own thing. And not be connected to what's behind it, we're foolish. And we can't just change the icon and say, "Well, we're just going to be something different, unlike the culture is what it wants to do." That makes sense? This would be a good time to say, "Amen, preach it, brother." OK? <laughs> OK, God is even more specific in our text about community. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God is even more specific. He's, he didn't just say, hey, I'm creating an image, of, I'm a Trinitarian God, Woo! Knock yourselves out. He gets more specific. And this is what he does. He says this in Genesis 1. He, so what did he do? He created families. He created families. Before sin entered the world, he created families. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. Both men and women are in the image of God. Community. But it takes both to be in community. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the first thing, right after six days, he says, it's all very good, but one thing's not good. Man is alone. We read how God dealt with that. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon him, and he put him to sleep. He took out a rib and created woman and put the w- rib back and, and he wakes up man and what's significant here is and then the rib that took uh, uh, from the man and made into the woman and he, he, God, brought her to him. God escorts Eve to Adam. Surprise! While you were asleep. This is what happens, which is why, if you probably already know this, in weddings, the father escorts the bride to the groom. This, that's what it's supposed to be. And Adam goes in and starts singing songs. He starts dancing and doing all sorts of things. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then verses 24 and 25 are key, 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 key verses. Have I emphasized that enough? Key verses. He says, therefore, let me back up. The author of Genesis at this point, we know as Moses, inserts an explanation. To make sure we don't misunderstand the significance of what just happened, he explains it to us so we, the readers of Genesis, the nation of Israel, and us today, will not get misinformed. This is the first time somebody explains the meaning of what just happened. Okay? It's significant. This is what he says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and Adam and Eve don't have a father and mother yet, so this is an explanation. And hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and the, his wife were both naked and not ashamed. This verse is key for a number of reasons. One, it's an explanation of the significance of Adam and Eve being united. Two, when Paul deals with family, marriage, you'll see this in a couple of weeks, he doesn't just refer to cultural norms, he refers back to Genesis 1 and says, this is the way God designed it. Jesus also refer, quotes this verse in dealing with issues. One of the things, this little segue here, little uh, parentheses here in our culture debate now, you'll hear some things, I've seen a guy has a, a book, and the book had a cover said everything Jesus taught about homosexuality, and you open it up and the it pages are blank. So his conclusion is, see, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, so it's okay. I've seen somebody use the same kind of thing, Jesus never said that same-sex marriage is wrong, so therefore it's okay. Okay, we don't need to be gullible with those kind of explanations for two reasons. One, uh, we as Christians believe all of Scripture is inspired and inerrant and believed by God. Not the red letters Jesus spoke only. Okay? The Bible does address homosexuality. It does address marriage. Whether or not Jesus himself addressed those topics specifically is secondary. The Bible does address them. That's one reason. The second reason is No, Jesus doesn't address same-sex marriage directly, but what does he address directly? Marriage. When we get to Matthew chapter 19, the topic's going to come up about marriage and how difficult it is in the context of divorce and whether somebody should get married, and Jesus, in his explanation of this, quotes this verse and says, you guys need to understand how God designed it from the beginning and he quotes Genesis chapter 2 24 and 25 24 that's why it's important yes people will say Jesus didn't deal with same sex marriage yes Jesus defined marriage as a, a marriage between a man and one man and one woman the way God designed it and Jesus implication is anything that does not fall within those parameters is not legitimate it's not a popular message in our culture It won't be long before it'll be illegal for me to say that. In some countries right now it is illegal for me to say that. Okay? But that we are going back to how did God design marriage. We do not have the right to redefine something that God clearly defined already. Okay. Why family? A man and a woman. They got together. Well, we know there's family. He didn't explicitly start talking about all the kids, but we know that there's more than this because they had children. One, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We're also told that they were naked and unashamed. There's going to be a lots of fruitfulness and multiplying real quick, okay? Just to be discreet here, okay? It wasn't going to take them long to fill the earth, okay? Also, we know that in, the, in Moses' explanation, a man shall leave his father and mother, implying kids, right? That's, so they have kids. So, what we're saying here is the six relational characteristics within the Trinity, role, responsibility, communication, submission, unity, intimacy, don't just describe humanity. That's, what my, that's not what Moses is pointing to in this text. He says, they describe not only people created in the image of God, but they, create, they describe families functioning in the image of God. What does a family functioning correctly look like? What are the components? We, we know what the components are. Role, responsibility, and communication, submission, unity, intimacy. Because God said, I created these things. Here's the family. This is all pre-fall. This is all from the original first two days of creation. So why did God design families? Why, what does he expect from them? He exp- and we see this in verse one, chapter 1, verse 28. He says, God blessed them and said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it this is this is subtle but it's very important for us to understand adam and eve were created and placed in a garden it's not just that there's it's not just a tropical island it was a garden it was manicured it was designed god designed it It had limits had borders we know it had borders because they described them the rivers They delineate. It's between this. This is the garden. Outside it is not. Okay? The garden, we're not going to spend a lot of time developing it, just work with me here. The garden represents or is God's order. It's a garden. And God's presence. Who was there? What made it unique? God was there. He he manifested himself physically in being there. They knew he was there. Adam and Eve talked to him. How that does, we don't know. So the the command to fill the earth implies that the earth was not yet filled with the images of God that reflected Him. Otherwise they wouldn't have to go fill it. Okay? Stay with me. God created humanity in His image. And this image is expressed relationally through humanity's work in having dominion and subduing the earth. Work dominion is not part of the curse it's not bad thing god designed us to work to have dominion over the world around us to subdue the chaos that's around us that's what he commanded adam and eve to do adam and eve were commissioned to expand the boundaries of the garden their dwelling place with god until it filled the whole earth adam and eve to fill the earth Fill it with what? Fill it with people. People doing what besides working? Imaging. The imaging God. Reflecting God. Reflecting the six characteristics of relational things. Does that make sense? This little little garden. And what God expected is it to expand and take over the world. Now let's use our imaginations here for a second. Let's speculate. This is pure speculation, so bear with me. Let's pretend Adam and Eve did not sin. The next chapter doesn't take long. They sin. Sin enters the world. Everything changes. But Let's pretend that they didn't. What would have happened? What would have, what would have history looked like if they had done exactly what God had said and they fulfilled their mission and lived in relation community like they were supposed to? Well, they would have worked the garden, kept it up, pruned it, picked the fruit, all those composted, I guess. I don't know maybe they had compost bins yeah we can we can extrapolate it's, a, it's our it's our fantasy we can do whatever we want with it they it, but but think about it they were naked and unashamed it, be fruitful and multiply they would have multiplied it would have gotten crowded real quick right food may even been in short supply so what were they supposed to do well god said so you have a garden you work it but when you have a family a man should leave his father and mother and they should go off and do what? Start their own garden. They should then take that chaos that's out there someplace, make it into a garden, and then what are they supposed to do with that garden, besides work it? Fill it up with other images of God. And when that gets crowded, what are they supposed to do? Send out the next ones to make another garden and fill it up with images of God, his perfect relational community. And thus the earth would have slowly been transformed from chaos, forest, to one network. I don't think it would be one garden. I think it would be a giant network of gardens, each one filled with families or networks of families who are in the image of God, living according to the relationship that he designed for. Does that make sense? Has God's design changed? Even though sin entered the world, does God's intention change? No. God's design for us is that we, as families, as community, go into the chaos, bring order, and fill it with other images of God, whether there are biological reproduction or through conversion, through people who don't know, come to Christ. That is the intention of what he wants us to do. But things go wrong real fast, don't they? We, this is just chapter 2. Chapter 3 and 4, things don't just go downhill. They jump off a cliff. Right? The fall. And, and, Adam, and we, if, um, in Adam and Eve sin, the image of God is not... When, when Adam and Eve sin, the image of God created in His image is not lost. It's important that we understand that. Any human being born is in the image of God. There's a certain element of community and role, responsibility. They still apply. Whether you're a Christian or not, it doesn't make a difference. It's not lost. But the image of God is distorted and corrupted. We're not perfect. We know that. All those things we listed do not work. And in Genesis 3 and 4, we see what happens to a family real fast when they turn their backs on the God being in the community. We see deceit Rebellion, selfishness, hiding, shame, withdrawal, fear, blame, denial, bitterness, anger, violence, even to a brother murdering his brother. Very short period of time, sin enters the world, and all that aspect of relation to community is distorted and corrupted. We have since then been living in those descriptions of what it means to be a family. That's the tarnish of sin. We function that way. There's a number of places we can go to talk about what the answer to that is, but I want to go back to one that's familiar with us, and I want it to be familiar with us, which I've told you before, is Ephesians chapter 2. There's a problem that Paul talks about in Ephesians. We are dead in our trespasses in which we once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here's the problem. We were told to multiply and subdue the earth. Instead, in our sin, we have become followers. We follow the world. We follow Satan's schemes. And we follow our own passions. That's what sin creates us. Instead of, instead of subduing, having dominion, we yield ground. But God's answer to that is verse four, 4. He goes, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, trespasses He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and it raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is so that no one can boast. It is a gift of God. And then he goes in verse 10. And we've talked about this before so I'm not going to belabor it. He goes, for this is why God saved, did all that saving when we are followers. For, for we are his workmanship. Listen to this. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Has God's creation mandate stopped because Christ came and saved us? No. It's just reinforced. We are now recreated in Christ and we are now given the same task of going out into the world that has chaos, bring order, subdue it, and fill it with images not just of God, but images of Christ because we have greater clarity now as Christians of what that means. And we know that from, and as Christians from, from the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, discipled is a disciplined learner, someone who is like his master. Jesus said that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. The parallels between what we are commissioned in the gospel and the Great Commission and commissioned in the, as a church between Genesis to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, they're parallel concepts. And um, we can go to a number, we're not going to do a number of New Testament arrangements to this, but I want to read one last passage, and that's in Revelation 21. Genesis 1 and 2, which we read, begins with a world that God creates in perfect unity, everything's right, no sin. Chapter 3, everything goes south real fast. It doesn't get put back together until Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible. This is how Revelation 21 begins. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a city, a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, now listen to this, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Where have we already seen that? Genesis 2, God brings Eve to Adam. And at the end of Revelation, he brings the church to Christ as a bride to a groom. And I've heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He is dwelling with them, and he will be his... They will be his people, and he himself will be as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, or crying, nor pain, nor anything else, for the former things have passed away. The creation uh, commandment, the creation description, begins God's work in humanity. That same similar description ends God's work with the new heavens and a new earth. I, I wear a watch that apparently tells me that I'm over right now. But, that's not my illustration. I want to close with this. I, I wear a watch. And uh, it t- what's the purpose of a watch? It tells me the time. It's supposed to. Um, is, is, is my watch time? Is, is this thing here time? Time? No, no. The best it can be is an image, an approximation of what time represents. It itself is not time. I have a tea bag in the corner of a picture in my office. Yes, I collect the wisdom of tea bags. And it said, When God created time, He created enough. When God created time, He created enough. No matter how much I get frustrated. And struggle with time. My schedule, my productivity, getting things done, being in the places I need to be, even trying to rest. No matter how much I struggle with my working within the time frame of God's design of time, we do not get to redefine time. We have to yield to time and function within its design. I I can't say, you know what, it would be a lot better if my watch had 30 hours a day So I'm going to create one, and therefore I'm going to function that way. That won't go well very quickly. It's the same with us with family. It's the same with us in community, even the church. Just because we're frustrated, just because we're exasperated, just because we're struggling, the answer is not culturally, personally, in a family, or as a church, is not to try to redefine it. It's to go back and understand the original way it is and yield to that, and work within those confines, but also the enabling power that God has us to do. As we come today, we're going to finish by taking, as we sing, we're going to take communion. We're going to take communion reminding us of Christ's love for us, His eternal love for us. We're going to take communion and remember that the Father sent the Son. We're going to remember that the Son came and died on the cross. We're going to remember that the, Holy, the Son sent the Holy Spirit to... And dwell us and to imply um, apply the truth of the gospel to our hearts that when we celebrate communion we are celebrating a trinitarian salvation pray with me our holy father we thank you for this day we thank you for you as eternally a majestic community and i pray lord as we uh, come to the communion tables we can be reminded of your perfect community. And as we come and ask for forgiveness or uh, pray for help or assistance or we repent of sin or whatever it might be, Lord, let us remember of, of who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. We thank you in your precious and glorious name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.